0: We invite your attention to the book of Micah. Now, if you don't know where that is, join the crowd. because It's number seven, page 725 in your, hymn, uh, your pew Bible. I did check, check that out. But if you can find Matthew in the New Testament, just work to the left. If, you go, if you've gone as far as Jonah, you've gone one book too far. I've often wondered when I get to heaven... When I bump into some of these so called quote unquote minor prophets, and they say, You know, Brother Aquino, did you ever preach from one of my books? You know, did you ever preach from Nahum, Micah, Hosea? Well, watch it, because they might bump into you. Have you ever read any portions of my book, Brother Don, Sister Peggy? when you all get to heaven? So I want you to cover your tracks right now and get an opportunity to read some of these quote-unquote, using my fingers here, insignificant passages of Scripture. I can assure you they are not. Well, I'm in Micah chapter 5 this morning as I share with you Christmas in July. I love this text because it speaks of great prominent themes that are associated with Christmas. Now, I know I'm not fooling anybody this morning by saying that Christmas, you know, the Christ Mass, that the birth of the Lord was not December 25th. We all know that, right? We just use that day historically given to us by our friends among the Roman Catholics. That's basically why we use December 25th. Uh, Brother Compton always had reasons why June our month of June or Nissan, I believe, somewhere along the line, the Hebrew calendar is when Christ was born. Some say as late as September. So, somewhere in that time. So, I'm kind of hoping that we're a little closer to Christmas in reality, or the birth of the Lord in July than we are in December. Now, you know, Constantine in about 325, somewhere along that line, when he converted to Christianity through a so called miracle on the battlefield, he basically had to cover his tracks. They were worshipping the sun god, Ra, during the winter uh, festival there in Rome. So they had to rearrange a few things, you know, the furniture to make it look a little bit more appeasing to the populace. So they made December 25th in that week there a celebration for the birth of Christ. But interestingly enough, even among scholars, it's difficult to pin down a time when Jesus was born. Some refer to the time of uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as to his particular office or work in the temple concerning they fix it at a particular time. Others look to the fact that you just don't graze sheep out on the hillsides in December. You know, they're in the pen, so to speak, or in, you know in, in, they're, they're in the fence because there's nothing to graze on the hillsides in the dead of winter. So there's a lot of reasons, but really nobody can fix it. But one thing we do know from Scripture, and one of the most prominent features of prophecy ever recorded, and that is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. The word literally means house of bread. It's amazing. I'm doing some research on churches across the country. You want to know the strength of America where it lied? If you look historically, you can see the landscape of this great country dotted many times over with churches. People were dedicated to going to church on Sunday morning and to worship God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our strength lies in this great country. And as far as we go away from that, the more we're going to see the dysfunctionality of humanity rise, the famine for hearing the words of the Lord. There will come a time, according to the prophet, that people will want to hear the message of God's sovereign grace and will not be able to find it. It won't exist. It'll be somewhere, but it won't be the popular message as before. So Bethlehem is a great place. And anyway, doing this research, I've been finding out that there are a lot of primitive Baptist churches that are named Bethlehem. It's a very popular name. Because there, the house of God, Bethel, the house of God, is a place of bread, spiritual nourishment, of food. that feeds our souls. That's what we want. We don't want somebody to take a poll and try to decide and decipher what people want to hear. No, we want to preach the gospel of God's redeeming grace. Brother Steve, you're always preaching about sin, salvation. Well, that's what the theme is. It's going to be in heaven. You better get used to it. Because it glorifies God. What He's done on our behalf. What He saved us from. What He did in the process of doing it. That, my friends, is something to glorify God right now. So, while you have breath this side of heaven, take the opportunity... To thank God, that he sent forth his Son, Jesus Christ. They called him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, I'd like to read this first five verses real quickly for you, so that we can get some gist as to where we're going to go with this. And now gather thyself in troops, he says in the very beginning, O daughter of troops, talking to Jerusalem. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he will give them up. Until the time that she, which travaileth, hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Beautiful, beautiful language. Verse 4. And he shall stand and feed. He shall stand and feed. Among the points I'd like to make this morning, there are two characteristics that portray or prominent features of the Messiah. And they're right there. He shall stand, and He shall feed. Just hold on to those two thoughts. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they shall abide for now, shall He be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man, verse 5, shall be the peace. The peace. When the Assyrian shall come into our land. Now, when I first looked at this, I thought of four major points I wanted to present before you this morning. The historical prophecy, or the promise right here. I looked also at the fact that there is a particular dynamic purpose. He shall come forth. I also see the permanence of this man's person. He is from everlasting. But then I also see the saving work... ...of his peace... ...as the last point... ...but it's that point that I like so much... ...that maybe if we just dwell on that... ...we can cover all the rest... ...but by way of introduction... ...it's very easy to see that Micah... ...if we read this throughout... ...was a prophet... ...in a time... ...of a horrendous situation... ...in fact like most prophets were... ...Isaiah was his... uh, ...peer if you will... ...but Isaiah the great prophet... We would refer to him as a major prophet because he wrote more. More of his scriptures is mentioned in the New Testament than Micah's. But they were, by and large, at the same time. And if you look at the very first chapter in verse 1, when we think about the historical nature of this book, we find easily who he's writing to, what he's writing about, and within the context It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Moorish fight. So he's from a little town, according to the 14th verse of the same chapter, a little village. Isaiah is a prominent prophet that's preaching among kings, like Hezekiah. Micah is a little guy. He's from a little town. He's preaching among the common people. He's closer to the working class, if you will. He said, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That lets you know, these guys are kings of Judah. So primarily, Micah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. But watch this. Here's where the Christian critics really like to pick. He said, which he saw, this vision, or this prophecy, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So not he's got a two-fold message, basically. <laughs> And he's preaching to those among the Samaritans which are to the north and also to Jerusalem which is to the south. And the Christian critics, as I mentioned, come along and they say, well, we got to discredit Micah. Why? Well, there's no prophet that lived during the time of the prophecy. How could it be prophecy if he's living in the time of, this, of the northern troubles from the Assyrian army? I mean, how can that be prophetic? Well, it is true that he lived during the same time That old Sennacherib were given, you know, Hezekiah some real trouble. The northern kingdom, Assyrian, these enemies to the north. But you know, you've got to read a little further, Christian critic, because he does mention Jerusalem there. And in this grand book, which is only so many chapters, how many chapters is it? Seven? Um, We find the mention of Babylon, which is yet a hundred years in the future. So he's prophesying not only about the condition of Samaria and the northern problem, but also a future problem a hundred years from hence, which he wrote. And if that's not good enough, you can skip over to the book of Matthew chapter 2 and find out where Herod consulted the scribes and the Pharisees about where should this child be born, the Christ child. And they referred to Herod to Mike his prophecy right here in chapter 5 and pointed to him that he will be born in Bethlehem. So, Christian critic, you're kind of lost because this book has certainly been ratified and it's been proven by the testimony of the New Testament itself that it is true. You know, you and I, as I've mentioned before, we have the book, a collection of books all together, fitly bound, wonderfully set, in the same ink, I mean, look, what did they do before 1425, before the Gutenberg Press? What did they do? They had manuscripts, handwritten. I wonder what the gospel regenerates, regenerates, thought before that time. I mean, how people had portions. They didn't have the Bible. My goodness, during the dark ages, if you taught your children the Lord's Prayer, uh, you could be condemned to death. Your family would be separated. Your children would be taken from you. And so it's an amazing thing that we have today, the collection right in front of us, all apart. We don't have scrolls. We don't have pieces here and pieces there to put it together. But if you did live back then, then you could visualize more and how important it would be, right, to understand these, prof- these prophecies 700 years before the time of Christ and yet true and valid in addition to the historical promise that we find in chapter 5 we can see the surrounding situation because here we're promised in the 5th chapter a ruler well in the 3rd chapter we find that the heads verse uh, 11 thereof judge for reward in other words they're taking bribes the priests thereof teach for hire in other words they're truly a salaried ministry if you want to know They're getting paid for what they do. They're taking bribes. What they're doing is for money. And the profits thereof for divine money. You know, so in other words, the leadership was very bad in that day. So the heads, the judges, the priests, the prophets were all corrupt. Money was at the bottom of their corruption. In the meantime, the poor folks of the people gathered around. And they were under the rule of this kind of corrupt leadership. And in chapter 2, we find that this same leadership coveted fields. They took them by violence and houses. They took them away. They oppressed a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. In other words, they defrauded people out of their property. Now, we're not talking about the poor people right here. We're talking about the common, ordinary folk, the hard-working individual. If you want to know the roots of communism, look right there. They oppressed the working class. They defrauded them out of their money. They did not give them freedom. Any government, any form of government that oppresses its poor, I don't care where it is on the face of the earth, that takes... You want to know where the entrenched bureaucracy, what they do? They defraud... The common people. Right there. That's what they were guilty of in the days of Micah. Here's another situation. You couldn't trust anybody. There was nobody, even in your own house, that you could trust. We heard of how the gospel brings, not physical peace, but in many cases it brings separation. Watch this. He says, this, uh, trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. You can't even trust your own wife, according to this text, in that day. For the son dishonoreth the father and the daughter riseth up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be of his own house. And so that's the kind of environment that we have, but praise the Lord, there's images of wonderful blessings in Christ in this book. Especially... Of the peace of God, as we mentioned. In other words, the work of this man shall be the peace, the peace of God. Notice with me in the fourth chapter. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now some take these scriptures, including the one mentioned in the fifth chapter regarding the man who shall be the peace as some futuristic period in the so-called millennial reign, a thousand-year millennial reign yet future. If that's the case, they have to include the next verse in verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Let me tell you something. These scriptures portray the peace that we have, the middle wall of partition broken down, and that all children of God are together in one. This idea that nations will be at war with each other are no longer foreseen under the banner of the Christian gospel that levels hard racist attitudes and brings us together in one in Christ at the foot of the cross. In Colossians chapter 1, the Bible speaks of a peace that we have through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, He's made reconciliation. We, ourselves, are no longer enemies with God. There's a natural enmity in our hearts against God. But God has taken that enmity away through the blood of the cross. Therefore, we have peace. We have peace through the blood of the cross. Now that word through is a prepositional phrase that speaks of the avenue whereby we have this reconciliation. And Jesus said, I am the way. And so when we think about the avenue whereby sinners are justified freely by His grace, it's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Romans chapter 5, we have another peace. He says we have a peace with God. That prepositional phrase refers to fellowship. Do you know, as children of God, if we walk by faith, we can experience a justification and a peace with God? We can walk. We can enjoy Him. Not just in eternity, but right now in time. We also, we have all kinds. Well, we have a peace of God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul speaks about a peace Of God that passeth all understanding. That's the kind of peace that I like to have. It's a peace of God. Now that little prepositional phrase of, it speaks of having a part of a whole. You know? In other words, we have the peace of God. We have a little part of God. God is peace. That's what it says here in our text. This man shall be the peace. There's no prepositional phrase here. Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 2 and verse 14, He is our peace. We adore the Lord Jesus Christ because He's not. He's made peace through His own blood. He has given us this peace that passes all understanding. He has given us this peace whereby we can walk and have fellowship with the Father. And even if we sin, somebody says, they raise their hand, I'm disqualified. I've sinned against God. My heart is wicked. I feel rotten. Well, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. He is faithful and just. He would deny himself if he didn't forgive you. For a pen, a penitent sinner, for those who, who go to the Lord and cry, God have mercy on me, it would it would be something that God would deny his own oath if he didn't forgive you. If he didn't say, my child... Your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Look at the language that he uses in this chapter. And can't you hear the Apostle Paul just exalting in this idea of this Old Testament wording. He says, Who is God like unto thee that pardoneth the iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Well, that's right here in the book of Micah. And so we see that peace is a wonderful byproduct of the Lord who was born in Bethlehem. Now, you think about... How this peace came. It didn't come through great extravagance, power. When we think about Bethlehem, we really think about a, a place. I mean, he actually calls it here Bethlehem Ephrata. Like, it needs a zip code to know where it is. If I said, you know, let's go to Towson, some of you may not know exactly where that is unless I say it's Towson, Maryland, right? It's the same thing here. Where is Bethlehem? It's a suburb of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's the place of prominence. I mean, you could muster a regiment in Bethlehem, which I understand is about a thousand troops. That's what he says. Gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He's talking to Jerusalem. He said, fortify yourselves. Jerusalem is the place of a military strategic location. It wasn't Bethlehem. But the prophet says, I'm not coming out it. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not going to come out of Jerusalem. I'm coming out of Bethlehem, a house of bread. Well, who is, where is that? I mean, Bethlehem, there's probably one inn. If there was a situation, probably there would be no room in the inn, right? As there wasn't in the day when Mary must give birth. I mean, there was no cell tower in Bethlehem, if you will. If they had a motel, it wasn't the Hampton, it was the Motel 6, and it was always full. Brothers and sisters, it was a one-street town, Main Street. It might have had a cross street, but no traffic light. It was insignificant. The best that they could have was shepherds grazing sheep on the hills. You know, this is a picture of the Lord's humility. A picture of the Lord Jesus humiliating Himself and presenting Himself... One of us, when we think about the birth of the Lord, we ask ourselves, why? Why? Because God became man. And we see that—that's a, that's a stoop. That's a big step down. Wouldn't you say? God becomes man. God manifests in the flesh. The God of all eternity. I was... Listen. God is so majestic. And every once in a while, we have to see it in our limited, very limited way. I mean, so limited that we should be ashamed of ourselves in our day and age. We have, a, we have a great position from where we stand. We're looking back at what already happened. It's not like we live in the days of Micah. But anyway, yesterday I'm standing here beside the porch, and here comes a spider down here, a little black spider. I mean, zzz. who could create something like that? I mean, you know what man can do? He can mix mortar. He can create concrete. He can take iron ore out of the ground and heat it up and make an iron girder. And he can build. And great, listen, I'm not... And great is his intelligence, you know. They tell me all the time that if you speak before the Lord's people, you can't use deep phrases and theological words. You can't go into the mind of prophets and talk. I think they're wrong. I mean, God has made you an intelligent being. Now, you can't create the little spider, but look what God has given you. He's given you understanding of what a ram is, a gigabyte, a megabyte. I mean, look at that. I, don't, I, I think you can understand the deep things of God. I think, I think you can search out the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't. That's what they say. I don't know who they are, but they say it all the time. I don't pay attention to them. I believe we ought to dish out the Word of God and be profoundly deep. In bringing out the secrets of God. That's what he says. But anyway. We find. The historical setting of Bethlehem. The promise. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though thou be little among thousands of Judah. And he's, again the word thousands. Has a reference to a military regiment. Yet out of thee shall come forth. Unto me. That is to be ruler. Now, interestingly, look at this. It says, he shall come forth. And this is where I get this dynamic purpose. This idea that's presented here that runs a theme throughout, a thread throughout the prophets. And I want to just show you an example of one of his peers in Isaiah chapter 40. See, we got this idea that Jesus just haphazardly showed up on the scene. You know, we got this idea that Jesus is a whimpering Savior, hoping to save His people if they only respond favorably to Him. I don't have that picture in the Bible. I see one who is coming forth, setting his face like a flint, like an arrow toward Jerusalem. But I don't think they got that picture. Do you? I don't think Nicodemus got it. I think he got some of it, but not... I think he was bewildered. You can look at the example of the Apostle Peter... Do you remember the time when the Lord Jesus Christ... You know, he asked them, who, who do you say that men... Who, who do you say that men... Who, who, Matthew 16, as I recall it. Who do men say that I am? And they said you're this, you say you're that. But wh- what do you say, Peter? They are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Listen. Truth... Christianity is revealed but anyway at that very moment he tells Peter and the disciples that he must suffer and be killed at the hands of the chief priest you know what Peter did here he just had a great confession what he did he he took Jesus by the hand he rebuked him and Jesus turned to him and said Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. They didn't understand the prominent features that are displayed here in Micah chapter 5 and throughout the Old Testament history for whatever reason, I do not know. But they didn't quite understand it. Notice what he says in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now, remember what I said. Dynamic purpose that he shall come forth. Not as a whimpering Savior who doesn't know what he's doing. The Bible said, Behold, the Lord God will come. With strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And so all I'm saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to fulfill the Father's will. That this is the Father's will that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. There's the great purpose of God. He was bound by that oath, you see. He was bound by that oath. He... He manifested that before Abraham long ago. And if God if he changed up in middle course, he would be taking a turn away from his his purpose his purpose and his aim. And I say that because I just I was just reading an old Baptist article. And bless his heart, the young man basically said that Jesus asked for another opportunity Another way whereby he—if there was another way—and he was commenting on the scriptures in Matthew where it says, "If you know, let this cup pass." And he, he likened it to, "Lord, show me another way. If there's another way, let me take it." No, no, no. When he said, "Let this cup pass for me," he said, "Give me strength that I may finish it. I've come to do the work of my Father." And I will not stray from that course. I'm bound by an oath. I will save my people by the design given to me from before the foundation of the world. I take that serious, brothers and sisters. And I'd like to show my dear friends what the scriptures really teach. That the Lord Jesus Christ shall come forth and set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He will take the full measure of God's wrath, on my account. And he'll do it with an amen, because he loved us from before the foundation of the world, you see. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his Son to be what? A propitiation for our sins. This gets me excited, doesn't it? But now remember... Among these four points, you know, the historical promise, this dynamic purpose. I'll get to this idea of this permanence of his purpose and the saving work of peace. There's two overriding prominent features of the Messiah that are displayed in Micah chapter 5. And that is his governorship. He shall rule. He shall come forth and rule. You see? Oh, I love sovereign grace, I tell you. And we often think about the sovereignty of God in light of salvation, but it extends beyond that. It extends beyond that. Bethlehem is a picture of God's sovereign rule over the providential events of this time world. Because he's putting together the work that he's designed from before the foundation of the world. That was no happenstance either. God designed it that way. God manifested in the flesh. He was born at Bethlehem and He fulfilled a prophecy right here 700 years prior to the actual happening of it. Well, let's move on. Because in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 10, we read further. In verse 11 it says "As He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. And so the second prominent feature of this is not only His sovereign rulership, but His shepherding. We see that combined in Christ. Peter, you didn't get that. Nicodemus, you did not get that. They were looking for rulership, yes. They were looking for physical deliverance from the Roman arm and the power of the Roman government. They wanted to see the city of David shine again as in the days of old. But they were misjudging the work of the Messiah. He shall feed His people. He shall gather them like lambs with His arm and carry them In His bosom, He shall gently lead those that are with young. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God within the idea of shepherding a flock? Notice with me in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17. Here we have a picture in heaven. What's it a picture of? The throne. And the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon His throne. Notice the words. He said, For the Lamb which is in the midst... Here's the sovereign rulership prophesied by Micah, prophesied by Isaiah. Hey, you can go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 49 and verse 10. Jacob, on his deathbed, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people. The word Shiloh means peace, full. Or peacemaker. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus who would rule, govern. But also, notice this. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. And shall lead them unto living fountains of water. So here's a picture of the Lord Jesus in all majesty in the throne. But it's also a picture as it's representing that second aspect of his messiahship. And that is that he's a shepherd. And that's why when we get across people that are dysfunctional, that are wrecked by sin, we have the obligation to share with them not only the sovereignty of God displayed in delivering us from our sin, but sharing with them that Christ will feed us out of the misery of the human condition and bless us, set our feet on a rock, a solid rock. Give us the same mind. Remember, he took the, the man who was, who was naked in the, in the, in the uh, cemetery, who was tearing himself apart, and God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered him and put him in his right mind. I'm telling you, that's what God does as a shepherd. He feeds his people. Gives us his right, our right mind. i tell you, we're getting crazy today, aren't we? I mean, we don't even know what gender we are. Listen, God made us who we are. That's a simple thing. That's truth. And the lines of demarcation have been blurred. They've been blurred by humanism and secular thinking. Even Christian circles have got problems overlapping. We don't know what to do. How do we address this? Those kind of issues remain today. Well, we have the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... Let me go to Matthew for a minute because it would be an important aspect to understanding this. In Matthew chapter 2, the prophecy regarding this is the scripture that we alluded to earlier when Herod wanted to know some information, and now the scribes have gotten together and they're quoting Micah, but I want to show you what it says in the Greek. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art, now, art not least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And the word rule, in the king's English, if you want, look in the center column reference, literally means feed. And so we see again, over and over again, throughout Isaiah and even into the New Testament, where the Lord manifests the fact that He's the ruler, a sovereign ruler, but also a shepherd and caring for His people. That gives us the understanding as to how He can give us peace. It passes all understanding. Because not only is God a ruler and sovereign, but He can help me. If all we had was a picture of Jesus on a throne. And never as a priest coming to our aid, helping us in our time of need. We would not identify with that one born in Bethlehem. Remember the reasons why he was born at Bethlehem because it was God manifest in the flesh. But in addition to that, he is showing the fact that he's identifying with us who are in need of so great a salvation. That Jesus understands who I am, who you are. There's not a concern in your entire life that he's unaware of. The sparrow doesn't fall without his knowledge. The Lord understands what we are going through. One of my favorite illustrations of this, I've got several of them, but I'll just give you one, is that of a woman whose name was Amy Carmichael. She lived prior to Mother Teresa. I forgot exactly where she was born, but she moved to India to be a missionary, to help. Primarily, primarily, she helped the infirm, but primarily she helped the young girls who were devastated by the abuse of the Hindu priests that used them for profit. It doesn't take an imagination to know what that means. But she was dedicated in rescuing these young women, these young girls, from the tyranny of the oppressor and giving them safe haven. But in addition to that, she helped the infirm, those who at the older age of their experience in life fell prey to the weakness of the flesh and ended up on beds of affliction. She predated Mother Teresa. But her prayer all her life, she wrote lots, but her prayer all her life as she was around these invalids, Lord, make me not as one of these. Help me to live a long life with strength. But she fell. And she became infirmed. She became an invalid. And for 20 years, she was upon a bed of affliction. She could never get up and help others like she once did. But it was there, during those times of great affliction and trial, that God came to her. And she enjoyed the peace that passes all understanding. It's enough to know that God is sovereign, is sitting on His throne. But it's another thing to know that God is sovereign, not only in salvation, but in trials, in providence, in our everyday affairs. To know that God is going to help. He does. He does. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. His arm will never grow weary. His heart never faint. Your trials will never overcome His grace. Your problems. You know, we're sin abounds. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I might have shared this with you before. But we're sin abounds. We're sin abounds. You know, we live in this lifetime world. You can tell Sister Connie. Sister Connie, sin abounds right now. It's got the upper hand. But there's something in the arsenal of God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Are you weary? Are you tired? Says in verse four that they shall abide all the suffering and the misery that surrounds us God's people a remnant shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty He will never leave them nor forsake them He loves them even to the end Jesus says in his great words in John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I present to you this morning the Prince of Peace. May the Lord bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.